Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Today I'd like to have you realize an experience, or at least to recognize the experience. And this is the experience of the sublime. The sublime, I believe, names the ultimate Christian experience. And by putting a name to the experience, which I think you've probably already had, but you can at any time or place experience joy, an epiphany of occupying a kind of eternal standpoint, and at the same time taking in your own mortal condition, and yet feeling an intimation of your immortality. That is the sublime. It's the recognition At the same time, the overwhelming power, the danger of the world that we live in. Maybe think of the creation of the universe, and that's specifically what we're going to read about in Romans. That in the exploding of the universe into existence, out of nothing, and the existential recognition that this power of the universe is unleashed in your own life in resurrection power, Those are the two things Paul is bringing together. And so the ground of sublimity lies within each of us as we reflect on what might be taken as fearsome. You know, think of the formation that says that the world was formless and void. Think of the colliding galaxies and planets coming into being. Or even in Genesis, it talks about a chaos in the beginning. But the sublime is to face this from a standpoint of containment or safety or comprehension, holding together, you know, in our imagination, in our reason, or in the formation of our moral ideas. That is, I'm going to say that the experience of the sublime is connected to our morality. And so look at Romans chapter 4. Paul puts together the elements of the sublime. In his depiction of the faith of Abraham, this faith brings together two key elements. The fact that God has brought the world into existence out of nothing, and the personal recognition that he can bring an individual back to life from out of death. And so look at 4.17, and in this verse, Abraham, of course, came to three conclusions in this verse that we're reading concerning death concerning creation and this is the basis of his being the father of a new nation verse 17 as it is written I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed that is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. The capacity to believe that God can call into being that which does not exist, creation ex nihilo, and that is a direct correlate to believing that he gives life to the dead. And these two beliefs are at the center of a new identity based on resurrection faith. And this faith is sublime in the content described at creation. That is, the earth was formless, it was desolate, it was emptiness, darkness was over the face of the earth, Genesis 1-2. 
And here is the first element. I think many religions stop at Genesis 2. Genesis counters the violent Babylonian creation myth that we think was contemporaneous with Genesis. The Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, the blood of the god Tiamat, the slain god, forms the canopy of the heavens, slain by Marduk. And this is the raw material of the creation order. That is its chaos, its violence. And as a story of origin, Genesis purposely subordinates the chaos. Verse 2 introduces the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, bringing order out of the chaos. Though Genesis mentions the confusion and emptiness it's subject to God, subject to God's organizing rule. The gods of the Enuma Elish, Tiamat, and Apsu, they're actually the salt water and fresh water. They're there in Genesis, I mean the salt water and the fresh water. But it is God who separates and organizes the chaotic waters of Genesis. The mythological sea, you know, all of the gods actually come from Tiamat and Apsu. But the mythological waters, the idea is the sea, it's chaotic waters, it always threatened. But in the Jewish understanding, the threat is tamed, it's eliminated by God. The waters are subject to God's ordering power. They're a part of his creative artifice in creating the world. And this chaotic power brought to order within ourselves. That describes the sublime experience, right? There is a combination of experiencing fearsome, overwhelming phenomena. You know, we've all been caught out in a raging storm, or we've been at sea, maybe, or threatening cliffs or mountains or towering thunderclouds. And we feel insignificant in moments like that. We feel their power and we feel our own incapacity. At the same time there is a terrible beauty that makes of the fearful something attractive. The more fearful and powerful it is as long as we find ourselves in safety. This is a description of what I mean here by the sublime. They elevate the strength of our own soul. That is we see this power and we discover within ourselves a capacity to take it in. And we measure ourselves against the all-powerfulness of nature as we recognize the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. That same Spirit, I think, is hovering within us in this description of Paul in Romans 4. The Jewish scriptures culminating in Romans 4 are founded upon God's creative control where many religions bow down before the power of the universe as the universe seems infinite within itself Jewish scripture is explicitly countering this divinizing of the world of any element of the world this is Job 38 maybe one of the common gods is the god of the sea the god of the ocean I don't know if you have that God here in Missouri or not. But Job 38, maybe one of the oldest scriptures, we think Job was actually written before Genesis. It describes God's control over the sea. Who enclosed the sea with doors? This is God speaking. 
When it went out from the womb, bursting forth, when I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling bands, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and I said, As far as this point you shall come, but no further, and here your proud waves shall stop. And so there is a picture of the threatening sea, but God controls it. And the danger is that we lose ourselves, we lose perspective in the seemingly infinite greatness of the universe. Even with modern science, there's revealed to us innumerable worlds. And as we behold this immensity, we feel ourselves maybe like drops of water in the ocean. And some religions just leave it at that and tell us that we need to feel our own nothingness, our own insignificance. And they bow to the power of the universe. And they relinquish, and this is a relinquishing of individuality. They say, forget yourself, give up yourself. This is not the sublime experience that Paul's describing. In a sense, this is simply to give in to the fear of the overwhelming power of the universe, the violence. And religious myth deifies the violence, the power of the universe. But the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, serves as an antidote, serves as a counter to this violent, these violent creation myths. And I think it even provides an explanation to these myths. You know, the early chapters of Genesis, they provide ample material which Paul uses in Romans chapter 1, which of course is describing the kind of people that Abraham's coming out of. And he describes in Romans 1 that they turn from worshiping God to deifying parts of creation. Creation ex nihilo, it's there in the Old Testament again and again. Or at least it's near equivalent. You know, God can take something from nothing is the idea. He can bring out of non-existence existence. And this is used to refute the idolatrous religions that imagine the world is the ultimate something. And the idea of creation ex nihilo is no God is the ultimate something because he brings the universe into existence. And yet Paul says that's not enough in and of itself. In Romans 1, the people he's describing, they had knowledge of God as creator. Maybe it's the very people in the original Genesis account he's describing. And these people had a knowledge of that creation, but it's inadequate he says in chapter 1, they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, verse 25, who is blessed. And the specific cause, verse 21 and 22 in chapter 1, which Paul points out, he says they became futile in their reasoning and in claiming to be wise they became fools. And as Paul will work it out in the course of his explanation in Romans, their acceptance of false views of creation are tied. In other words, this idolatrous worship, it's tied to their orientation to death. What does the universe tell you? You're going to die. That you're mortal. That you're insignificant. That you can be reduced to nothingness. And as he says at the end of this chapter, knowing that these things deserve, these things they're practicing, deserved and were tied up with death, 
That didn't deter them. That only encouraged them. They approved of the wicked deeds and knowing they were tied to death, he says, this was an impetus to do them anyway. Verse 32. It's as if one stands before the violence and death of the world and this becomes your moral principle. And the counter-morality that I'm describing as the sublime experience does not take the violence, fear, and death as the final principle. Resurrection faith, it takes all of this into account, but it does not stop there. Paul is tying a particular morality to this faith. How are faith and ethics interlocked? Here it is. By having a kind of sublime dynamic in our life, we have a power to imagine standing against that which is fearful, potentially crushing natural or human phenomena, and recognizing that though we are finite being, these phenomena, whether it's nature or powerful forces, they do not have dominion over us. And this is the story of Abraham. All of this comes to Abraham as part of his existential journey into a reorientation to death. Look again at chapter 4. It says that his faith became a realization as he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Verse 19. And then verse 19 to 22, it describes Sarah's womb was dead also, combined with his faith that God could bring life from out of death, that brought him to a fully assured understanding that God could do what he promised. He could bring life to Abraham and Sarah, and of course this is true of all of us, he can bring life out of death. Abraham is our type, he's our prototype of faith. And what he comes to understanding is that his is not primarily a biological or a material problem. You know, if you look at it from a human perspective, just the fact that he's dying and that Sarah's dying and her womb is dead would prevent them from continuing life in and through a child. But death reigns only for those who in their sinful orientation, they imagine they must negotiate life on the basis of death. And they're overcome by the world instead of being overcomers, right? And so Abraham overcomes those who do not overcome instead of experiencing the sublime they just experience fear the fear of the powers of death the fear of the powers of the world what I'm describing is two doctrines come together the doctrine of creation ex nihilo the doctrine of creation from nothing is tied to the doctrine of resurrection and we can see these two things unfolding simultaneously in Scripture. As far as I know, there's no other religion that teaches the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, and there's no other religion that teaches the doctrine of resurrection. It developed very early, you know, even among the Jews in the Second Temple Judaism. The books that are in the Catholic Bible, but in fact are not in our Bible, the Maccabees, the book of the Maccabees, it describes the Maccabean revolt. 
And one of the stories is there's this woman who has seven sons and all of her sons, you know, six of her sons have been martyred and her youngest son is about to be martyred. And she encourages him not to lose heart. This is from 2 Maccabees. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Creation ex nihilo. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher, that is this man that's about to slaughter you, and he does slaughter him. But prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back again along with your brothers. So two things come together here. And I think it's really the first time we encounter a complete depiction. It's there in the Old Testament in several places, but clearly the creation ex nihilo. And with it then clearly a doctrine of resurrection. And with creation there came into being, she says, the creation of the human race. And what this means is that you can challenge the present social order. You don't need to fear them, even upon pain of death, knowing that the social order is itself contingent. God is alive. God is exuberant and has nothing to do with death and the social order of the world that is built upon death, such that it is a light matter to die rather than to become subject to the purposes of evil men. And what is coming into view, of course, in Maccabees, this is the 400-year period between Malachi and our Bible and Matthew, we're beginning to get the implication of the work of Christ as creator and redeemer, the one who would be raised from the dead. Death is going to be put in its place by faith in God. And the faith which is no longer oriented by the sinful orientation to the cosmos. It's enabled to put the material order, the corporeal body, in its proper place. Now even in the writing of Genesis, we know that it's the realization of Abraham. You know, Abraham precedes Moses. If Moses wrote Genesis... The experience of Abraham precedes the writing of Moses of Genesis. It precedes the early chapters of Genesis describing creation. And the proper access to creation, I believe, is enabled by the faith of Abraham. The disabling of death and the idolatrous reification of death by which Abraham is surrounded, by which we're surrounded. And the access to creation is always enabled in the same way. That is, we need to have this experience of the sublime in which we bring together creation ex nihilo and resurrection faith. The access to creation then, it's not simply that ex nihilo creation and resurrection, you know, that's like bookends. One begins here, the other ends there. But it's talking about our present tense faith. It's something that we experience both of these things. It pertains to our present moment, where matter, death, biology, time, these might be experienced as barriers which block out ultimate reality. 
But faith recognizes that the world, the body, the material order of the cosmos, they are the conduits for participating in the life of God now. Creation understood in light of salvation turns out to be an unfolding of God's eternality for his human offspring. Existentially realized, this is the experience of the sublime. Now, of course, this is not a natural experience of the world. The understanding of the world against which Christianity is pitted is one, you know, well, we just think we know what the world is, and we can start there. And this sort of understanding might postulate the world as absolute. That's not just the idolaters in Genesis and Romans, but that's true of the world around us, that this world is made absolute. Or even in a Christian form, it might be misconstrued that we give final weight to this world or to this cultural moment. I think an example of that is a presumed order of the logic of some Christianities in which the natural world comes before or is thought to precede logically salvation. And it's assumed that we have access to creation and then, you know, we have creation and then comes salvation. What I've just described to you is saying that sequence doesn't work. You need the resurrection to understand the creation. We need salvation in order to understand creation. It's assumed that wrongly, that, you know, traditional, it's called the prolegomena. This is the way theologies often begin. Well, let me prove God. The, the way that we understand creation is not a natural thing, but I think that our tendency is to distort that. And the way this distortion will show up is that if you begin with creation, guess what gets de-emphasized? Resurrection. Obviously, in a Greek philosophical understanding, there was no place for the doctrine of resurrection. That made no sense to a Greek. And it shut it aside, I'm afraid, for many Christians who missed the significance of the sublime and or the resurrection in the sublime. And so belief in creation or belief in creation ex nihilo by itself, that's not enough. It has to be paired with resurrection or we don't have this experience of being in relation to creation in the way that Christ was. Now there's some debate. You know, some people say, oh, well, creation ex nihilo, that's kind of there in the Old Testament. It's there more explicitly in the New Testament. What's clear in the second century AD, we have people that are going out, missionaries going out, and they're going out into the Greek world. And they're going to defend the doctrine of resurrection but the way they're going to defend it is on the basis of creation ex nihilo. Resurrection, you know, that would require a plateness. It's going to mean a complete reconception of their world. Because resurrection makes no sense in their world. It would demand a rethinking of God, of the material world, and what humans are. You know, think of Paul when he's preaching on the Areopagus in Athens. And at the end of it, he begins to talk about the resurrection and they begin to scoff. They begin to make fun of him. And I think that indicates the overwhelming change that the gospel calls for. So it wasn't just a matter of accepting the resurrection, 
Because for a Greek, that would be a damnable sort of condition rather than salvific. But what was required that they change up their view of both resurrection and the world? To make resurrection seem either plausible or desirable. Because in a Greek frame, the corruption of the body, how do you escape that? Well, you shed the body, your soul, immaterial soul, it escapes. And, you know, this may sound like Christianity, but understand that's not Christianity, that's Greek paganism. Later, Celsus, who is recorded by Origen, Celsus is kind of an anti-Christian and Origen's writing against him, but he mocks, Celsus mocks the despicable links to which Christians are willing to go as it may seem that any human soul that would want to occupy a body, you know, why would you want to occupy a body subject to decay and that will continue to rot? This is Celsus. God in no way is able to do shameful things. Neither does he wish things contrary to nature. And he says, God is reasonable. And being reasonable, he would not preserve the body, which Heraclitus tells us is to be cast off like garbage. The material and the corporeal are subject to chaos and corruption, and that's unreasonable. In other words, if it's corrupting, if it's changing, it's unreasonable. And the reasonable soul must be rid of the body. He says, quote, God is not willing or able irrationally to make everlasting the flesh, which is full of things which are not beautiful, which are ugly. God is the reason of all things. From the standpoint of resurrection, that we can look and see that death and corruption, they're the primary factor in the Greek conception of, of both God and the world. He's saying God can't overrule this primary law of death. He can't overrule the law of corruption, which mark the material universe. That God's order of reason is in fact beyond this world. And God is equated, as reason is equated, with something that's opposed to this world, to the disorder of this world. And so to be on the side of God, if you're a Greek would mean that you're part of the city of man, you're part of society, it's, you know, it's over and against the death. And the whole point is that we control death, we ward it off through religion, through sacrifice, through law, and this imposition of reason in the chaotic world. Now, I'm afraid that our doctrines that we've been picked up in penal substitution, divine satisfaction, or a Christianity that has gone bad, that is the price of controlling the universe, even in some forms of Christianity, is violence. But this is a profound misunderstanding. These doctrines have risen like pagan sacrificial cults on the presumption that God must negotiate with and attempt to defeat the corrupting power of death. Does God have to negotiate with death? You know, what's the story of the New Testament? It's a misreading, I think, of God, of the world, and of the Judeo-Christian hope. And so the Hebrews picture God as the originator of heaven and earth. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who hammered out the earth and its produce, 
who gave breath to the people upon the earth and spirit to those who walk on it. The oneness of God opposed to a kind of duality between God and the world, the gods and the principles of the world. The idea is no, there's a uniform order. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it a chaos. He formed it to be inhabited. He formed it a temple for himself. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in chaos that is in the midst of death. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There are no secret deals, no dark bloodletting, no prior chaos with which God has to deal. And any social or religious order founded upon seeking God in chaos is directly refuted by this God who speaks directly and clearly into the world. Now in the Old Testament, this is called wisdom. But wisdom is personified. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. And throughout this proverb, he's describing the power of wisdom. And of course, as we describe wisdom, it's almost like we're describing the incarnation. It says in verse 22, The Lord created me at the beginning, that is wisdom, the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From eternity I was established. And then throughout the chapter, reason or wisdom, you know, it doesn't escape from the world order. Rather, it's on display. God's wisdom, in the Greeks, it's up there, it's gone, it's not in the world. In the Old Testament, God's wisdom is here to be shown and seen in the world. And this wisdom from eternity, it's linked, you know, through the proverb, to springs, to hills, to fields, to the heavens, to the skies. Think again of our picture of sublimity. The sublime is to experience in nature as we see the wisdom of God. And throughout the proverb then, the conclusion, verse 30, it culminates with human, the creation of humans, and it says the wisdom is the master workman. What is prior to creation is God and the wisdom of God. Now, the New Testament says we have direct access to the wisdom of God through Christ. The divine wisdom does not exist beyond the world, but it has become incarnate. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word has become flesh, the wisdom of God has become man, and this is Christ. We can recognize that though we are part of the natural world, there is still a part of us that's not reduced, we're not overcome by the world. And the sublime builds upon the intuition morally and cognitively, that we do not bow to the world against reducing ourselves to nothingness. We recognize that we can think God's thoughts after him. And there arises the immediate consciousness that all these worlds that exist, we are the ones recognizing these worlds. You know, this is Copernicus. This is the great scientific revolution. We often think that Copernicus did only one thing, that he 
moved man from out of the center of the universe or the earth from out of the center of the universe and he certainly did that and yet at the same time he came to realize that he could represent the rotation of the planets mathematically so two things happen simultaneously he discovers the mathematically sublime can we put it that way a person is cognitively frustrated and humbled by objects, the planets, the universe. They're too vast to comprehend in their seeming infinity. And yet Copernicus gives for the first time in human history a mathematical conception of how this planetary world is ordered. He needs to do both things, right? He's knocked from the center and yet being knocked from the center he has a conception of, of, of the rotation of the planets the beauty of the thought matches the beauty of the world and in some sense the wisdom of man matches the thoughts of the creator there is no question that modern science has its primary impetus in a Christian conception of creation ex nihilo and a Christian understanding of who God is in Christ and Copernicus, I believe we can say, is an example of the experience of the sublime. The feeling of human smallness, but a sharing in divine wisdom. And so that's my conclusion. But with resurrection faith, we recognize the vastness of the world, which may have previously disturbed our peace of mind, but now sublimely that peace rests within us. Our dependence on the world is now annulled by a realization of its dependence on the resurrection power, the same power that brought the world into being and which now resides within us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.